If you can go ahead and take your seats, you can open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. What's that? Ecclesiastes chapter 4. All right, let me read verses 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was nowhere to, no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two, are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, and one, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this specific word. Thank you for this specific book and the time that you have had us spend in it. And I ask, Lord, that you would take this text and, Lord, you'd sow it into our hearts. You would Help us to see the things that Solomon saw, shared with us, Lord, that we might see them and we might discern your will for our lives as a result of these things and what life looks like under the sun apart from you and apart from really your grace, your redeeming grace at work. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to help us make sense of all this. 
that, Lord, we wouldn't just be uh, people who look into the mirror, so to speak, of your word and never change anything. Lord, we want to be radically changed by your word. And so, Lord, accomplish your good purposes through this word in our lives and in our church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Sort of had a little smirk on my face after I was done reading it. And I, like, part of me was just like, okay, you got to prepare them a little bit. Like, Solomon kind of nosedives a little bit in that section. And so I just read it, and I got up, I was kind of looking, and I probably misread people the wrong way, but it's just a little dark, isn't it? Like, if you were, if you were listening, and if you were to go back and read through that section, and we will in pieces, you just, you just wonder, what, what happened to Solomon? What happened to him, like, seeing God somewhere, bringing us just a little bit of hope and and we don't really get that in verses 1 through 16. We just kind of get him looking out at life under the sun. And he shares these four things with us. This is what I saw. And so should have prepared you with that. But we're going to kind of try to lift it because this book also fits within the greater book of God's word this morning. But um, let me just ask you a question. Would you rather have one dollar or two? Like if somebody came up to you and said, I'm going to give you, a, you can have $1 or you can take $2. Or if, let's say you're, you're going to go and you've got to go on a run this afternoon and on your way out the door, you forgot your shoes and somebody comes up to you and say, uh, I, you can have one shoe or I can give you two. W- would you like to go on a run with just one or would you like to go on a run with two shoes? Okay, you kind of get the point. Most of us would like to have two shoes, and we'd rather have $2 over $1. Let me ask this question. Now, if you could live on a desert island the rest of your life, or you could live on a great island, whatever, just something really, really nice, would you rather live alone, or would you rather be able to pick somebody of your own choosing? You don't have to answer this out. Some of you might get in trouble. And, I, and I, joke, I joke around, but sometimes I would say, yeah, I, I think I'll just go by myself. If we're honest, there's, there's those moments where we just think, I mean, I had my whole retirement planned out the other day, and I was sharing it with my wife and my in-laws, and they kind of mocked me for this. But like, it, what it involved was kind of dark, because I've been in Solomon a little bit, but I, it was this. My thinking was, okay, if my wife passes away before me and I'm getting older in age, I'm buying one of those vans that you can travel in and nobody's coming with me. And it only works as if my wife passes away before me. And so I'm going to travel around by myself and I said I'm going to turn off every searching device so you will never know where I am. And I told my in-laws, I said, I might show up at your house unannounced but I'm going to just live out of this van and I'm not going to cut my hair and I'm going to have a special hat. I'm telling you, I had this thing all planned out and it was just a short drive from my house, I think, to the store with my wife. I saw this van and I said, this is what I want to do the rest of my life if you die before me. I want to be alone. And I think we all, we all have that temptation, don't we, sometimes, where it's like, just leave me alone. And so if you're presented with that opportunity... By yourself on an island or somebody of your choice, what are you going to do right now? Well, some of you might say by yourself, but the reality is what we're going to learn from our text this morning, I think most of the time what we'd say is two is better than one, right? Most of the time. There's always exceptions 
to this in life, but what we learn today in this text, in our message, is that people are really important to us. Community is a gift from God that he has given to us, and it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. God has not called us to get in a van and travel alone the rest of our life, isolated from everyone else. He's called us to live life in real, meaningful relationships with one another. When God created Adam and Eve, he, he didn't leave Adam alone in the garden. He gave Adam a helper. And so we just see, even in the beginning of Scripture, that it's part of God's purposes and His plans that He would create a people of His own possession who would relate to Him rightly and then relate to one another as well as we live out our life in community with one another. But the problem with this community and the way that we relate with one another is this little thing called sin, Right? So we we know we're supposed to live with other people. We know we're supposed to live out our lives in community like this, in real relationships. But sometimes relationships are hard, aren't they? Sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes we just want to buy a van and just run away from everything because we want to avoid these hard relationships. But what we're going to learn in this text is that Jesus suffered and died alone on a cross to save us so that we could live in real relationships with one another. Jesus suffered and died alone on a cross, exhausting the wrath of God, paying the full penalty for all of our sins so that we we wouldn't have to live alone, so that we could live in real meaningful relationships with one another and benefit from those things. So we're going to take a look at that truth by taking a look at four things that Solomon saw in these verses that I just read to you. So the first thing that he saw is that he saw that there was no one to comfort the oppressed. So all four of these things that he saw, they, they might have seemed sort of random to you as we're kind of reading through it, but, but there's, there's, a, there's this kind of thread that runs through them all, and it's, it's relational. It's the way in which people see people, the way in which people aren't present in circumstances, certain circumstances. And there's this this great truth that's communicated that we'll see in the third point. But the first thing he saw was he saw a lot of oppression. He looked out at life under the sun and, and what he saw is he saw people being oppressed. He saw wicked people oppressing other people and the people being oppressed were all alone. Verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And again, under the sun is life lived apart from God. It's life in the world. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So Solomon, looking out at life, notices this tragedy. He notices that there are people in places of power and authority who are ruling over people who are under their power and under their authority in such a way that they were hurting them or they were oppressing them. Now, Ian Proven, he is an Old Testament scholar, he defines oppression as accumulation, seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. 
So these powerful people were taking advantage of the people under their power for their own profit. Powerful people were taking advantage of neighbors. They were stealing from them. They were maybe defrauding them. They were making sure that they were profiting and succeeding in life while at the same time making sure that those who are working for them or serving them, in this case, did not succeed. Making sure that they weren't able to actually better their life in any way, but instead making sure they remained in lowly positions. This is kind of another example, if you remember from last week, from Solomon, of of how life's just not fair. The rich just keep getting richer by abusing their power and authority by oppressing people who are under them. Philip Ryken, in his commentary, wrote the following. He said, then and now, oppression is an awful evil. Under the sun, many people live under the thumb of abusive husbands, gang leaders, mobsters, and dictators. Think of the genocides of Bosnia and Rwanda and the ideological purges of Darfur, the attacks and suppressions of Islamic terrorists, the sexual abuse and slavery of children, the unborn child with no voice, not even the mother's voice, to cry out to spare her life. See, all oppression is evil. But what makes this even sadder, this is the thing that Solomon is pointing out here to us, is that as he looked at this oppression that was taking place and the people who were being oppressed, the things that he saw, the thing that he's drawing our attention to is that these people who are finding themselves being oppressed, being taken advantage of, they had no one to comfort them. There was no one present in their life to put an arm around them, to kind of just pat them on the back, to do something to encourage them in any way. They were alone. And I'd say, this is not the way life's supposed to be, but this is what Solomon saw. Just think about, think about a young child. When that little child, that little baby starts to cry, it hurts themselves, what do they typically do? When they're hurt, all you got to do is hang out long enough in this room and you'll see it after the, after the message. They'll, they'll fall, they'll start screaming, and they're looking for somebody. Who are they looking for? They're looking for their mom or their dad because they want to be comforted. When people get hurt, the natural tem- temptation or the natural tendency is to be comforted. And what Solomon is saying, I saw this going on. I saw people in power oppressing people. And these people who were oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. No one. No one to to give them a hug. No one to encourage them in any way. And so then Solomon shares his thoughts about this. This is where he kind of gets a little dark. Verse 2, he says, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who's not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So it's pretty dark, isn't it? If this is what life is like under the sun, this is what he sees. He sees powerful people oppressing Weaker people, and then these weaker people being oppressed have nobody to comfort them. He just says it's it's better actually for them to not 
to not even be alive. It'd be better if they were just dead because then they wouldn't have to experience this lonely, oppressive existence. And then he says, no, but as I really think about it, it it's, it's going to be even better for them if they never took a breath in this world. If they didn't have to experience this evil. Again, that's pretty dark, isn't it? But again, he, he's on the hunt. Remember, he's on the hunt for what's the meaning of all of this? What's the point of living? And he's out there and he's looking. Solomon is out there and he's looking and he's observing the way the world works apart from the grace of God, meaning apart from people actually seeking to honor God, just the world kind of doing whatever it is it wants to do. And this is what he saw. He saw wickedness. He saw evil. And he saw no comfort in the place where there should be comfort. The life lived apart from God without real friendships in this world, it's not a good life at all. It's a lonely life. It's a life of very little comfort. But as Christians, we don't live life under the sun. See, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who came into the world to comfort us to care for us, and to ultimately save us. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Matthew wrote the following. He said, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd, Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, we have a Savior in Jesus who loves the helpless. He loves the harassed. He loves the oppressed. And all you got to do, go back, read the Gospels, and you see what he did and how he handled situations like this. And then we have here in Matthew this sort of recording of our Savior calling us as his people to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into the harvest, that we might go to the helpless, that we might go to the harassed, that we would actually comfort people who are oppressed. See, life under the sun, you're not going to get much of that. But life under Jesus, the Son of God, He cares about the oppressed. He cares deeply about them. He came and He met with them. He came to die for them. And then He calls His church, in a way, to to go to them. He's called us to live in relationship with Him and with one another. The second thing Solomon Saul was that the envy of others motivated people to work. Rather than receiving work as a gift from God and taking joy in whatever it is that God has called us to do, Solomon noticed that people who live their lives apart from God are motivated by the envy of others. Verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Instead of working together with others and helping others succeed in life, Solomon looks out and he's like, all these people are working. 
they're all giving themselves to something and it seems like they're competing with one another. That's what he's getting at when he's talking about envy. He says, says, life lived under the sun. I saw people going to work and, and a lot of folks are out there working to just be better than their neighbor. They're out there waking up early, working long hours just to have things have things that they see their neighbors have. They want those things, so they sacrifice tons of things just to kind of keep up with the Joneses, just to drive that really nice car, to have a really cool home. That's what he's getting at here. He says envy is kind of what's motivating people who are working out there under the sun. Again, apart from the grace of God. There's this desire to possess something that God hasn't given to them, but maybe given to a neighbor or to a friend that's found root in their heart, and now they're just working hard to get that. What Solomon's saying is a lot of people are working hard just to possess what they see others have. Instead of being content with what God has given to them, they work to obtain what they don't have, but they really want. And we see this all the time, don't we? We even see it show up in our own hearts. We see it when people neglect their families to put in extra hours to get a promotion, to get the bigger house in the better neighborhood, to buy the nicer car, to wear the cool clothes, and the list just goes on and on. We see it when husbands and wives both work really long hours, neglecting their relationship with one another and their roles as husband and wife and mom and dad so that, so that they can drive that really nice car to work, so they can pay those HOA dues and live in that really nice house. We see it when people are living for their dream jobs while neglecting rest and their relationship with friends. This is kind of what Solomon sees here. He says it in one way, but what he's getting at here is is envy of others is motivating all of these sacrifices that are taking place. And just think about your own life. What do you sacrifice to get what you want? Maybe something that God hasn't given to you. Or why do you work as many hours as you work? And again, remember, work is a gift from God. God has called us to work, but are you sacrificing anything that God has called you not to sacrifice to obtain something? And a lot of times the way this shows up is it can show up when we find ourselves in debt, kind of over our head because we've extended ourselves to go get something that we really can't afford and therefore then we end up sacrificing a lot of really good things just to pay the bills, to again keep up with the Joneses. When people are motivated by envy of others, they'll do almost anything to get what they want. And that's what Solomon saw as life under the sun. And then he saw this in verse 5. He said, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Rather than working hard to get what they want, he tells us he also saw people who just kind of gave up. So he saw the opposite of this. Instead of seeing people just putting in the hours to go out there and get that thing... He also saw people that just never left the couch. People who didn't leave their homes. People who just folded their hands and decided, you know what? 
I'm not going to go to work. People who have just grown and so discouraged that they, they stopped. And he says this about him. He says he folds his hands and eats his own flesh. He said that too is destructive. Derek Kidner says the following. He says he is the picture of complacency and unwitting self-destruction. For this comment on him points out a deeper damage that the wasting of his capital. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is. Eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. So what Solomon sees here is people working too much and people not working enough, all for the wrong reasons. So if you think about work and you think about work-life balance, all that kind of stuff, which one of these do you find yourself tempted to the most at this point in time? Do you find yourself envying what others have and sacrificing the good things in your life that God has given to you so you can go out and get something that God hasn't given to you? Or do you find yourself discouraged? Tired of running this sort of rat race, putting in all of these hours, sort of never really getting ahead. Maybe tempted to just fold your hands and give up. See, work is a good thing that God has called us all to do. He hasn't called us all to do the same things or to have the same things. But he's called us to work. And he's called us to work with others. Some of us will have really nice things. Some of us won't. Some of us will be able to go on really nice vacations. And some of us won't. Some of us will make a lot of money. And some of us won't. Kind of how the Lord has created it to be. I have this friends who like to plan extravagant things at times. And I've had to learn this lesson, but I've also had to have this conversation with them sometimes. Is where I just have to tell them, listen, I would love to do that with you, but I don't live in the same tax bracket as you do. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like some people have to go on really cool vacations. And some people don't. But what Solomon is saying is he sees some people who really want to go on those cool vacations, but really can't, and so they're sacrificing everything to get there because they're not content with what God has given to them. And so in some ways, what he's calling us to here is he's calling us to, to, to just take a look at life and, and live life not just under the sun, but under the glory of Jesus Christ, recognizing that God is the giver of all good things. He's given you your job, and he gives you your paycheck. The question is, will we trust him for it? Verse 6, he goes on and he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. His conclusion on this matter is that it's far better to just be content. It's far better. Be, be content with what God has given to you. It doesn't mean give up. It doesn't mean dream. It doesn't mean pray and say, Lord, would you have me do this? Should I take a different job? He's not saying that. But what he's doing here is he's, he's, he's sort of just saying, as, as he looks at this, if, if you're going to choose something, living life under the sun, highly recommend that you're not motivated by envy. That you don't fill up both hands and start to just reach for as much as you possibly can because that's a burdensome life. 
He says the quiet life, a handful of quietness, then two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. When we're motivated by envy and we just want what others have, he just says, here's what that's going to be like for you. It's going to be like you going outside, try to catch the wind, open up your hands, run as fast as you can and do not stop until you've been able to grab the wind. That's what being motivated by envy of others will end up doing to you. You're going to just be chasing and chasing and never arriving because somebody will always have something better. There's always going to be a better house. There's always going to be a nicer car. There's always going to be a better vacation out there. Solomon says a handful of quietness, it's better than that. We all have a choice in how we're going to work and live out our lives. We can be motivated by envy. We can be lazy and just give up. Or we can trust the Lord. And we can work at whatever He gives us for His glory and our good. The third thing that Solomon saw was that greedy people are lonely people. In this next section, Solomon directs our attention to the person who is chasing money at the expense of having real and meaningful relationships in his life. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business a person who's just so committed to his work, so committed to making money that he's never really settled down and, and he has nobody in his life. He has no one around him to share life with. He has no wife to help him and talk about his day. He has no kids. He has no kids to inherit any of the money or the resources or the possessions that, that he has when he dies. He doesn't have a brother to sort of sit back with on the weekend, maybe go play a round of golf with and just relax with. He's all alone, so committed to making money, so committed to working that that there's nobody around him, nobody to help him, nobody to share his wealth with. He's so committed that he doesn't even have time to stop and ask this question, whom am I working so hard for? Why am I making all of these sacrifices? Who really is going to benefit from all of this? What's the point of having all this money in the bank that if I die or when I die, nobody gets it or nobody that I know gets it? The all work and no play is kind of a lonely life. God has created us to live out our lives in community with others. We we need people. We need friends. We need real relationships where we can talk to people, where they know us and we know them. We desperately need others to help us be faithful and fruitful. Verse 9, Solomon kind of then changes a little bit and he just says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. When he falls and has not another to lift him up, 
Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So what he's doing here is he's making a point is don't be the guy who works really hard and has no friends. Don't be the guy that buys the van, travels the country, and never lets anybody into his life. Don't be a lone ranger. God has not called us, nor has he created us, to live life alone. Two are far better than one. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I think what he's getting at there is just more the merrier. The more community you have, the more people that you know, the more you will benefit and the more others will benefit as well. If you had to dig a hole today after church, if I gave you a shovel and said, okay, I just, I needed to dig this big of a hole. I don't know it's a decent size, four by six, we'll say decent enough. Okay. You got, and you got a choice. You can do it alone or you can pick two of your friends today. What would you do? You're going to take two of your friends because that hole is going to get dug quicker. And I recommend a battalion at least to stand there and show you how to do it and teach you how to do it. Anyways, that's what he's getting. And he said, and if you're out alone and you're working and it's cold, it's better to have somebody with you than to freeze to death. So all that to say, what, what, what I want us to see, I think what God wants us to see is we desperately need others in our lives. The temptation we all face is to go alone. The temptation we really face is to, is to shrink and to hide from others, and to not let others really into our lives. As I thought about this, and as I was praying about this, and one of the things I wanted to just share with you is, is this has taken me some years to figure out. Now, I've always known, okay, you need people. But what I'm talking about years to figure out is, is the difficult people in your life. Do you got anybody have those people? And by difficult, I just mean people who aren't like you. My, my wife and I joke around, sometimes that's one another in each other's lives. I told her the other day, I said, we were having a conversation. We laugh about this, but it's taken years to get here. I said, I know we're both speaking English, but I think we speak a different dialect. And I was kind of joking around, but if you've been married, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like it takes us a while to work through things. But God has given me my wife to slow me down in certain areas and help me grow in a lot of areas. And not just my wife, but God has placed people in our lives. I guarantee to stop today at some point and look around the room or look around the people in your life and just ask God, God, who have you placed in my life to really help me grow? And what I want you to think specifically about, think about those people that are hard for you. I guarantee they exist. They're the people that when you talk to, sometimes you say something, they completely misunderstand what you're saying, and then a conflict erupts. Anybody have any of those people in your life? Maybe it doesn't erupt. Maybe it just sort of grows a little bit. Sometimes it might be your mom and dad. You're right. Sometimes it might be your dad. Anyways, point being is these people are gifts from God. They're gifts from God. And what I mean by that is God is at work in those relationships, revealing things about us that we would never know apart from them being in our life. Because what it looks like is if you just hang out with people that are like you, speak like you, love to do the things you do, guess what? All you really know is what you know. 
But when you find yourself in a community like this, maybe go into a community group with people that don't think the same way you do, don't have the same gifts, aren't always on time like you are, don't like the same food you like. It could be just a thousand different little tiny things, but God has placed them in your life and he's placed people like that in my life to help us grow. That we might be more fruitful. That we might be more faithful. Like I thank God every day for my daughter. I have three boys and we can hang out all day because we all like the same thing. We all do the same stuff. But God gave me a little girl. She kind of likes those things. But as I've had to learn to communicate with her and enjoy the things that she likes, I've grown probably more from my interaction with her. And sometimes that interaction is just a lot of conflict. Having to work through difficult conversations. And it wasn't always me telling her how she needed to change, but it's God helping us both learn to live life together in community. See, people are important in our lives. And not just the people that we love to hang out with, but the people that sometimes are difficult. Because God's placed them there. And what he'd say is, two is better than one. And the more, the merrier. The more you will grow. And so God has redeemed us and he saved us to live life together. May we never neglect these relationships that he's given to us. Instead, might we just pause and stop and say, Lord, what are you up to here? What are you up to in the midst of this conflict that I might find myself in with another brother or sister? Lord, where might you be causing me or helping me to grow? What do I need to see that I wouldn't otherwise see apart from this friend in my life? We don't have time, but I could spend hours, I guess, talking through that because it's just illustration after illustration of how God has used many of you at different times in my own life to help me grow. And I'm sure you have your own stories of people in your life that God has used to protect you from your own foolishness or ignorance at times. Or people that God's used to help you just grow in a love for Jesus. See, living life alone limits us. But God has not called us to live alone. He's called us to live our lives in community. The fourth and final thing that Solomon saw was that it can be lonely at the top. This is a very short point. I don't have much to say here. Verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom... He had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So what he sees is an old king. He was poor and he grew up and he became king and he got into this place where he ruled over people and guess what he did? Makes the classic, what do we call it, the old man mistake. You get in that place where you feel like you're, you're, you're old now and, and you've learned a number of things and, and you stop learning. You see an older king who doesn't know how to ask for advice. An older king who doesn't know how to live in community with others. An older king 
who doesn't really consider the interest of the people he's actually called to serve. And he says, oh yeah, and then there's a younger king who then he takes over for the older king and he gets to serve a lot of people. There's so many people there, but guess what? In Solomon fashion, it doesn't matter because he's going to die and nobody's going to remember him anyways. Again, this is life under the sun. And his whole point in really helping us see what life is like under the sun is that we wouldn't choose that life. That we wouldn't live a life trying to find meaning in life apart from God. Because this is what happens. You could be the king. You could be the president of the United States. You could have the best job and live in the best house. And basically, he says, at the end of the day, life moves on and nobody's going to remember you. So we don't live life under the sun. And God has not called us to live life apart from him. Instead, we have a great God who has so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in our place. And then to die a sacrificial death on the cross so that we would be forgiven, reconciled to God, and united together with brothers and sisters, all through faith in Christ. See, Christ died alone on a cross so that we can live out our lives in community with one another as we worship him. This is good news. We don't have to live life under the sun. By the grace of God, we get to live life for the glory of God. May we choose that. May we seek to honor God in all that we say and do. And may we love the community that he's called us to. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would just continue to pour out your spirit upon us. Lord, as we pick up these chairs, as we pick up our kids from their classes, as we walk out of this building or gather around and just talk, Lord, would you surprise and delight us with fellowship? Lord, may even a new friendship grow as a result of the time that it takes from people to get up and go to their car tonight, today. Lord, we, may we be a church that really values one another seeing that, Lord, these relationships were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Lord, may we be quick to encourage. Lord, may we be quick to reconcile broken relationships. May we not grow in bitterness, but may we uproot bitterness. May these relationships be marked, Lord, by your Spirit's power and great joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.